Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service in Instantly, We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Justin J. Wee. It said over 40,260 men online now. I said, well, get ready for number 40,261, honey. Yes! That and more. But first, no one really has time to go to the post office. We're all too busy. But Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. You simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail's ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in the mailbox. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. No wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, Risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and and there's Donkey. (laughs) Donkey. He uses Stamps.com, and he loves it. And right now, Risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter Risk. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Brian Bromberg behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Renewal. I am so excited that spring is coming. And so today we have this wonderful episode. I'm so excited about this episode. Stories of trials and tribulations that kind of lead to inner resurrections and period blood. There's period blood in it too. Another thing I promised myself <laughs> last year, I was like, when spring comes, you gotta remind people that we need your pitches <laughs> for our Halloween episode coming in October, our kinky episode coming in November, and our holiday, our winter holidays episode coming in December because it, it's so hard to get pitches for those shows that I've decided, no, 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 no. I've got to start calling for them roundabout springtime. If you live in New York or Los Angeles, or really if you live anywhere in the world and you have a scary story, a kinky story, or a winter holiday story, for fuck's sake, motherfuckers, <laughs> I don't care what time of year it is, <laughs> pitch us at wristshowcom slash submissions. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a really remarkable story that was shared the first time ever Risk visited Indianapolis. That was a great show. And we're going to hear from Nikki pretty soon sharing her story there. But before that, a little something from John Marco Ceresi. <laughs> John Marco is one of the busiest comedians I, I know. He is all about town here in New York City. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at John Marco Ceresi. Let me spell that. It's G I A N M A R C O S O R E S I. And here he is now at the Risk Live show at Caveat in New York City. John Marco Ceresi with a story we call The Sloppy Vampire. So, uh, I went to college uh, for musical theater. Uh, <laughs> yes, thank you. Not my parents in the front. Uh, but it means I'm what's known in show business as a triple threat. Don't be scared. Uh, threat number one, I can act. Threat number two, I can sing. And threat number three, I'm annoying. Um, and... <laughs> It, it was at that it was at that musical theater college that I, I I met the love of my life. This girl, her name is Laura, or it was Laura. Now it's Trader. And um, <laughs> when we broke up, she moved to L.A. and got married, and I moved to New York, and I got a tattoo of the first letter of her name right here. Uh, I know, I know. So now there's this horrible moment when you know I'm making love with a woman for the first time, and I have to tell her about my dead friend Larry. Um, <laughs> Not that I was making love with, with anyone for a very long time. Um, I think I, I was depressed. 
And I was anxious because uh, I, up to that point, I'd only had sex with two people, Laura, and uh, once we did a fiddler on the roof, and we had sex, uh, you know, as our characters. So I consider that two people. Um, I, I know I was Tevya. She was the fiddler. It was a very awkward exchange. Uh, but then I, I found out through social media that she had gotten pregnant, and I was like, okay, she's fucking. I got to get a head start on this. So the next day, I, you know, I, I downloaded all the dating apps. I, I got dressed. I deleted all the dating apps. And I decided I would pick up women the old-fashioned way by taking uh, Improv 101. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and there was this girl in, in my class. Real quick, no one here knows Beth, right? Okay, good. So it, uh, there was this girl named Beth, and uh, she was short and stout and sexy as fuck. She was, I don't know why, every woman I'm attracted to is the same height as my mother. I'm not sure why. But she, she had like, she had all these piercings and like Dragon Ball Z blue hair, which is like the full package for me, personally. Um, but she was way out of my league, except I noticed that every time we did a scene together, she made me her dad. So I thought, you know, maybe there's something there. So... Um, <laughs> For our, for our graduation show, I don't know if any of you were there. It was, it was 2 p.m. And uh, <laughs> afterwards, she was headed out, and I was like, ah, come on, Jamarco, you know, have some chutzpah or show some chutzpah. Whatever you do with chutzpah, do that thing. And I, I went up to her, and I, I in improv pickup line. I was like, hey, I have a suggestion. Let's go get dinner. And she was like, uh, she was like whatever. And I was like, fuck yes. So... <laughs> I, I took her to my favorite first date spot, this place called Blockheads. And, uh, yes, some of you first, perfect. I mean, we, we had a meal. We had, we had, uh, we had chips and salsa. Guac was extra. YOLO. We had these big, big, big burritos. We have this drink there. I love it. It's called a red-nosed bulldog. And, uh, do you guys know it? it it's, it's, like, it's like frozen margarita mixed with frozen sangria with an upside-down Corona in the middle. It's, it's just it's traditional Mexican cuisine and and I ended up paying for the entire tip so she like she dragged me back to her place and it was this it was a beautiful apartment it was like she had a, she had a doorman elevator that opened up into her apartment I, her family had invented oil or something and uh we, we go to her bedroom. The lights immediately go off at my request because the burritos, I was feeling bloated. And um, uh, we, went, we went straight to third base, uh, by which I mean, you know, I, I, I went downtown on her, and then she teased like she was going to go down on me, and then she did not. Uh, it, was, it was adorable. You just... <laughs> and um, bottom line is clothes, clothes are off. Clothes are off. It's time. It's sexy time. And the, pr- the problem was, neither of us had a condom. Now, I always keep one in my wallet, but it expired in 2013. It's more like a reminder to be social. And uh, she, she said we, we could do it without a condom, but I will not have unprotected sex with anyone who would have unprotected sex with me. It's a Groucho Marx. It's a good rule to live by. So I, I Google where the nearest 7-Eleven is because it's 2 in the morning. 
Um, uh, I, I get dressed, which takes forever because I refuse to turn on the lights. And she tells me, like, you better hurry or I'm going to fall asleep. So I, like, I bolt to the fucking 7-Eleven. It's like 12 blocks away. It was very cold. And I, I, I burst through the doors. Again, it's like 2 in the morning. And I'm like breathing. I point to the condoms are behind the counter so I don't steal them. Uh, and I, 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 that's why. I, I pointed to one of those... One of those like Trojan three packs, Trojan her pleasures, because I'm a gentleman. And the the cashier, there's only one guy there. It's the, it's a dude. He's the cashier. He gives me this like look, not judgy. Like he was like kind of startled, which was weird. I, I normally with with guys, sex is like immediate camaraderie. I expected to walk in and be like sex, and he'd be like ah sex, and they'd like throw me the condoms like a football, and he'd be like those are on the house. And as I'm running away, you'd be like, oh, that kid's going to be all right. <laughs> but it's, instead, he gives me this, like, look. Like, he's, like, he's kind of startled. I was like, dude, come on. Condoms quick while I'm still hard. Let's go. And finally, finally, he gets the, he gets the condoms. I, get, I get, get out the money. I'm starting to pay. And that's when I realize that my hands are covered in blood. And my first thought is, oh my God, what does my face look like? (laughs) Now luckily there was a shoplifting mirror in the corner. So I got to see exactly what my face looked like. And let's, let's just say I looked like a very sloppy vampire. Like I had eaten a full rack of ribs, no napkins at all. And that's was like, oh, that's why the guy was acting so weird. What do you think? Some guy burst in the 7-Eleven 2 in the morning like, condoms quick while the body's still warm. So... I, I get the condoms. I can't run back anymore because I'm covered in blood. I'm like, I don't want to look suspicious. I don't want to be on the next season of cereal like this. And, and then I get to her place and the, the doorman, I don't know if he was off duty. He's not there. So I call her on her phone and I guess I took too long because she's fucking asleep. So I took a very long subway ride home, just kind of sitting like this the whole time. And I, t- I took like a, a, you know, a nice long shower. And as I was sitting in the shower, masturbating, I thought, you know, maybe I'm just not sex guy. I'm, I'm sitting in the shower and masturbate guy. And that's okay. That's not, that's okay. But I got to... I got a second chance. I got a second chance because a week later, uh, Beth texted me and she apologized for falling asleep. And she, she said, she invited me back over. She said, don't worry, I'm not going to fall asleep this time because I got a 20th of cocaine. And would you like to split it with me? Now, first off, this was exactly a week later. So like cycle-wise, I was in the clear. But second... <laughs> I had, I had never done cocaine. I had never even seen cocaine. I went to the University of Miami in Florida, and I would never even seen it because I, I don't get invited to a lot of parties. And, 
But I had I had seen Scarface, and you know, based on that, it looked like a fun time. I never finished the movie, but the first half looked like a blast. So this time we, we go out we go out to my favorite Italian restaurant, this place called Sabaro. And <laughs> do you know what? It's got great prices. And <laughs> we're in a we get in the cab back to her place and like I'm i I'm starting to really fantasize. I'm like, we're gonna we're gonna snort some coke, we're gonna fuck like rabbits, maybe there'll be a shootout, I don't know. But <laughs> We get to her place, elevator doors open. She goes to get the cocaine. As I said, it's a 20th. It was in a penny bag. It looked like it could have been like a little, like a Ziploc bag for a mouse. And like for a moment, I was like, oh my God, what if you mixed up his bag with our bag and he's at work? That's enough for possession with intent to sell in the mouse world. And that's the screenplay I'm working on. But she, she gets this little bag and she wants to do bumps off her keys. And I was like, no, no, no. We got to do it like they do in the movies. We got to do it off a mirror. And I, I think it's because mirrors, it's like, I think it's either because it's flat surfaces or just like one last chance to look at your life and your choices. <laughs> the problem is the only mirror she has is this fucking mirror, like, like, uh, like ivory frame that's for a giraffe. So we can't even pick it up. We put it on the floor and now we're snorting cocaine like we're rabbits, basically. She, she pours it out. I, I make some lines with my Chase Travel Rewards card and I'm like, I have got to figure out how these points work, I swear. I, I, I roll up a, a, a dollar bill. That's the highest denomination I had. And, uh, but I'm feel, as I'm rolling it up, I feel like George Washington's looking at me like, I cannot tell a lie. You about to fuck. And uh, she does a line, I do a line, she does a line, I do a line, she does a line, I do a line. I think it's starting to kick in because I, I feel confident enough to disrobe with the lights on. And uh, I go to get the condom because I brought a condom because I'm a fucking genius. I brought a condom this time. But as I'm about to put it on, I realize <laughs> that there is nothing to put it on because there's one part that they do not talk about in the movies and there's this thing I just learned about called Coke Dick. And I guess they cut that scene from Scarface where Al Pacino's like desperately beating his flaccid dick <laughs> while keeping his woman aroused with a non-dominant hand. <laughs> but like after, after an hour of fucking all the techniques I know, it's... I'm starting to show signs of life when you're like, say hello to my little friend. And I, I, I go to put, the, again, they, there's not a lot to put the condom on, so it feels, it feels like I'm putting like king-size sheets on a beanbag. And <laughs> we're about to fuck, and then I start, I notice that my heart is beating unusually fast. So just on a lark, I quickly Google on my phone, you know, has anyone ever died from cocaine? And... <laughs> It turns out, yes, a lot of people have died from cocaine. <laughs> so I say, like, uh, not to be a Debbie Downer, but, like, is there a city MD open? And she's like, you're being ridiculous. You're fine. Let's just fucking... I was like, well, thank you, Dr. Beth. But why, 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 why aren't you calling 911? I am dying! So long story short, I'm in the ER. And the doctor said I was fine, but just in case, she prescribed me a therapist. <laughs> and Beth and I, it didn't go any further. We never went on a third date, which is a shame, because normally a third date is traditionally you know, when you might have sex. Um, and I realized, like, you know, maybe I'm not, I'm not the fun, do some cocaine and sex guy, but I'm, I'm, still, I'm still hopeful, uh, because I recently signed up for Improv 201. And uh, 
I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much, everyone. It's Christmas Eve. I am seven years old and it is raining outside. Absolutely pouring, which in Columbus, Ohio at Christmas time is not typical weather. So for some reason that got into my little seven-year-old brain that that meant Santa Claus wouldn't come. And I was sure Santa was not coming that night. I cried and I cried and I cried. My parents could not console me. Eventually they just put me to bed to cry it out on my own. Shortly after I went to bed, my older brother Scott came into my room. He's three years older than me. And I know now at that time he didn't believe in Santa anymore. But he wanted his little sister out of a good Christmas. He gave me a big hug. And to this day, I don't remember exactly what he told me, but somehow he was able to reassure me that Santa would come, and I was appeased. I went to sleep, woke up the next day. Sure enough, Santa had come. That may or may not have been the last civil conversation I had with my brother until we were adults. We were never really close as we didn't really have anything in common. Uh, We were day and night, black and white. He was more of like a football star. I was a theater and choir nerd. He was super popular in school and I was super not. And it was constant bickering growing up of me yelling things like, you're a stupid butthead. And he would say, why do you think mom and dad stopped having kids after you? At which point he would sit on my head and fart as older brothers do. (laughs) And as we got into adulthood, we had even less in common as he Pursued the American dream, getting a job at a large company, uh, marrying his high school sweetheart, two beautiful children, house in the suburbs, while I spend all my time in dark theaters with other artists. (laughs) A little bit after I graduated college, I'm in my first apartment, and my phone rang way too early one morning, and it was my mom. She said, Nikki, um, Scott's in the hospital. We don't know what's happened, but it appears he's had a heart attack, which felt weird to me because he was only 26 years old, but it became more surreal when I got the exact same phone call a month later. He had had a second heart attack. I sat in this very quiet hospital waiting room with my mom and his, my brother's wife and my father, and I just kept saying, I don't, he's 26, who has two heart attacks and a quadruple bypass surgery, 26? It was explained to me that my brother had been abusing alcohol to the point of alcoholism and also using drugs since high school. All of this on top of what we now found out was hereditary heart disease. This day began a very, very long and complicated 14-year downward spiral for Scott of constantly climbing on and falling off the wagon. And every time he fell off, he felt just a little bit harder, and his constantly weakening heart took the brunt of it. 
About seven or eight years after his bypass surgery, we're both in our early to mid-30s, my first marriage had just ended, and Scott was between jobs, which was not unusual at that time. My parents were summoned by his wife to pick him up. She had thrown him out of the house weeks prior, but he had shown up and was making a scene in front of his two young children. They called me not knowing what to do. They said, can you come out and talk to your brother? What I was going to say, I don't know. So I get to the house, and my parents are sitting at the kitchen table looking a little angry and maybe a little scared. And my brother's looking guilty and somber until he sees me. His eyes light up. Nikki! Hey, sis! And he stumbles over and grabs me in a big bear hug. Hey, welcome to the party! We're having a boo-hoo pity party for me because I'm a big fat loser, boo! At which point he bursts into tears. And he's hugging me and he says, Nikki, I'm so sorry I wasn't there when you got divorced. I should have been there for you. I'm your big brother. I don't know who... This stranger was hugging me, smelling of booze and vomit. This, this wasn't my big brother. This wasn't the brother that I called a butthead and sat on my head and farted. This, this wasn't the, the young man who hiked Philmont with his father multiple times. This group of four adults sitting somewhat scared in a kitchen. This wasn't the family that spent all their summers camping and traveling all over the country and grilling steaks in the backyard. Not long after that, after yet another failed attempt at rehab, my brother had moved back in with my parents. My mom called me one day while I was at work. Her voice sounded odd and a little scared, and she just said, I I I don't know what to do. Your your brother, he's having some kind of attack, and and I'm scared, and I don't know what to do. So I leave work. I rush out to the house yet again to find my mother sitting nearly catatonic at the kitchen table. And my brother, upstairs, violently detoxing in his bedroom. And I don't know if you've ever seen somebody in the throes of the DTs, but I hope you never do. Called an ambulance. We were worried that the DTs would set off his pacemaker. And I went downstairs, and I grabbed my mother's hand, and she just said, I don't know what I did wrong. I I must have failed as a mother. That soft mom voice that used to read Little House on the Prairie books to us to put us to sleep at night sounded far away and strained and just tired. And at that moment, this huge raging inferno of just hate and anger built up inside me for my brother. Here's my mom, our mom, our mother, who, like most parents, devoted her entire life to her children She stood by me when I decided to pursue an ever-useful career in theater. She put her entire life on hold to take care of this this now stranger to me in her house who was causing her nothing but pain and hurt. On more than one occasion, I can recall telling my husband, when Scott dies, and I mean when, not if, I'm not going to shed one fucking tear for him. And if he was just gone, then I wouldn't be so angry all the time, my mom wouldn't be so hurt all the time, and we could just go on with our lives without all this turmoil in it. Somehow, after that incident with the DTs, my brother seemed to get his shit together. He stayed sober for a little longer. He was able to get a job. He was able to see his kids sporadically. My father had put him down one day and said, you need to write down a list of everything that's important to you so you know what you need to work towards with your sobriety. But all Scott ever wanted was to be a good father for his two children. 
And he did. He stayed sober. He got to see his kids. But we were so enthralled that he'd been sober for so long that we didn't notice that he was starting to lose weight. And his color and his face was changing, and he seemed to be slowing down. On Christmas Day, a month before my brother's 40th birthday, I finally noticed his physical appearance. His face was sunken, his eyes were dull, and his skin was so white it was almost blue. And he said in a voice that none of us recognized, Mom, I don't feel good. Can you please take me to the hospital? This is when we got the news that we were expecting but dreading the most. Uh, He was in heart failure. The quadruple bypass surgery he had had at uh, 26 was only meant to last 10 years, and it had now been 14. There wasn't much they could do there, so they flew him up here to Cleveland to the Cleveland Clinic Heart Failure Unit. They took him up to the helipad on the roof of the hospital in Columbus, and they handed my parents his book bag, and my mom told me the next day, Nikki, I have only ever seen your father openly cry twice, but when they handed him that book bag, he sobbed. So once again, here was my brother breaking all of our hearts. Up here in Cleveland, heart failure was confirmed, and they said there was nothing else to do at this point but a heart transplant, but they wouldn't put him on a list because he was an alcoholic and also used tobacco products. They said if he was clean and sober for six months, they could put him on the list, but even then there was no real guarantee. They put in a uh, left ventricular assist device, a heart pump. After a very long recovery up here in Cleveland, he got to come back home to Columbus and live with my parents for a while. But things turned around. With the heart pump, his color came back. He was eating again as he put on some weight. And things felt good. We'd have dinner at my parents. We'd play games. One day, I remember we were at my parents' house for dinner, and I was sitting on the couch next to my brother, and I kind of nudged him. I was like, hey, butthead, you know that you're not allowed to die, right? Because I'm not taking care of mom and dad on my own when they get old. Somebody's got to help me pick out their nursing home. And he said, well, yeah, and who else is going to sit on your head and fart? And just like that, I had my big brother back. We had cookouts. He and I would text back and forth about what was going on in Game of Thrones and our mutual love of camping, but... He got to see his kids again, which was the most important thing. There was an early spring evening. I was at home, and my phone beeps a new text message from my mother that just read, Your brother is still a drunk, and I'm still a fool. All those months that we spent repairing this relationship we had and forming this new bond and all this happy cookouts and texting and animal love, and he just threw every fucking moment out of that for a bottle or three of vodka. My mom told me the next day, he's sorry. All recovering alcoholics have slip-ups. Even then, she was standing by him, but I just, I couldn't anymore. It was too late for me. I couldn't stand by and watch my mom fall apart over and over and over again while desperately trying to help him. A couple weeks later, it's the day before Memorial Day, and my parents had planned this big cookout, and I promised to be there and play nice with my brother for her sake. My mom calls, and I answer the phone and said, Hey, Mom, what's up? Nikki? Okay, Mom, what, what's wrong? Mom, what is it? What's wrong? Nikki, Scott's gone. He's gone. Nikki, your brother's gone. I said, Okay, Mom, Mom, where are you? What hospital are you at? I'm on my way. Just tell me where to go. No, Nikki. He's, he's, I'm at home. 
your father went to check on him. We had, couldn't get a hold of him for a week, and I just couldn't go by myself. So I made your dad go, and he found him. Nikki, he's gone. His gut's gone. When I got off the phone, I fell on my knees in my apartment, and I just cried. This isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I wanted. I mean, sure, he's gone now, but my heart wasn't, my anger wasn't, and my mom was a bigger mess than ever. This strong woman who stood by her son through decades of illness and addiction, no matter what, she felt so small and frail in my arms when I held her that night, and she sobbed. But all that hate and anger that I held on to for so long just kind of melted away because it didn't matter anymore. About six months after Scott's funeral, I had this dream. I was out at my parents' house, and my parents and I got into this huge fight over I don't even know what. And I just said, I'm leaving, and I'm never coming back again. I hate you. I grabbed my bag, and I went to the front door, and I heard my brother's voice behind me say, Hey, Nikki, stop. So I put my bag down and turned around, and there's my brother, looking like he did when he was 23, just young, healthy, and whole life ahead of him, and he's dressed head to toe in white. (laughs) And he said, hey, I heard you fighting with mom and dad. And I mean, I know they're irritating. Believe me, I know. But they're your parents. You know, take it easy on them. They love you. And I know you love them too. But most importantly, they're not going to be around forever. And you guys really need each other, especially now more than ever before. I smiled and said, yeah, you're right, you butthead. (laughs) And gave him a hug. And I turned around and grabbed my bag. But as soon as my hand touched it, I stopped and said, nope, but Scott's dead. And when I turned around, he was gone. But for the second time in my life, like that Christmas 35 years ago, somehow it was my big brother that was able to reassure me that everything was going to be okay, even when I was damn sure it would not be. Thank you. This is Risk. 
This is Donnie Hathaway behind me now, and we just heard from Nikki in Indianapolis. You can find her on Instagram at the only Nikki27. Now, every now and then, someone will email us at Kevin at Risk-Show.com and say, hey, can I try cutting together one of those audio interstitials that you do? This fella, Tim Sutton, is a theater composer in the UK. He did the Easter egg a couple episodes back, the Dicey episode. Hilarious Easter egg at the end of that episode. And he did this one that we're calling There Will Be Blood right after uh, John Marco Ceresi's story on this episode. So thanks so much to Tim Sutton. And yeah, if you're an audio editor and you're interested in giving that a try, I'm at Kevin at risk-show.com. Our final story on today's episode is one I am so excited to have on the show. Justin J. Wee is a fiercely fabulous photographer on Instagram at DJ Dumpling and online at justinjwee.com. He had never shared a story on stage like this before, but you can really hear how much heart and soul he put into this at our Risk Live show in New York City. So here is the fabulous Justin J. Wee now with a story he calls, Yes, I Am a Grain of Rice. He is my brother Holy shit. (laughs) I'm really extremely gooped to be here. Uh, I have been a really long time fan of the show and uh, I made sure not to eat dairy today and I said a little prayer. So (laughs) let's, we'll really be able to tell if God hates the homosexuals today. Um, I remember the first night that I met my ex's best friend. My ex was really excited because this guy was coming down from DC and he was like, you guys are going to love each other. And I was 25 and this was my first relationship. And I was, had somehow landed this like extremely hot human who had like an insane amount of tattoos on his body and a really nice sharp jawline and he had this like really consistent and like full covering of facial hair which as an Asian man who can only grow like a toothbrush on my upper lip was like just incredibly appealing and the thing is it's not it's not even like a nice toothbrush it's like a roadside motel toothbrush where you like where you just kind of look at it and you're like does this even have a function But we were in Hell's Kitchen and we were waiting outside a club called Therapy and his friend finally arrives. And my ex says, Justin, this is Blaine. And so I say hello and then he says hello. And I'm like feeling this real explosion of like platonic chemistry. And all of a sudden I'm seeing Blaine give me the once over. And then he looks over to my ex and he goes, oh, I didn't know that you were into Asians. And I look at my ex and I see that his face is like kind of crunched up. And I'm watching all of the cogs in his brain kind of grind to a halt. And I really want to reach out and hold his hand and say, 
I'm personally really grateful that your dick doesn't discriminate because it feels really good. But all I could think was, yeah, I get it. I don't know why you want to date me either. And then the bouncer waved us into the club, which was called Therapy. And I went to the bar, and I bought a whiskey ginger and a tequila shot. And then I was, like, moseying my way through all of these muscle marys. And there was a stage on the back. And because I'm an upstanding homosexual, I got up on the stage. And from where I stood, I could see all the lights in the club kind of, like, swinging around. And they cast this, like, blue light on the dance floor. And the thing about white people is that you need as much color in your skin as possible. So when someone shines a blue light on you, you look like a fucking ghost. (laughs) And so I was looking at all of these ghosts in front of me, and I became acutely aware of just how many there were. And at that very moment, Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball started playing. And here's a pro tip. If you have just been microaggressed, if you're in a club called Therapy, and that defining Miley Classic comes on, those are the three ingredients you need to have an existential crisis. (laughs) And all I could think about in that moment was how I had gotten here. When I first started dating in Sydney, I decided to join a website called Manhunt, which, you know, truly sounded like an activity that I'd be very interested in. Um, (laughs) I remember, like, logging onto the website for the first time, and the word MAN was in all caps, and it was emblazoned in gold, and then right underneath it, it said, over 40,260 men online now. And I looked at that, and I looked at the sign-up button, and in just my most primal voice, I said, well, get ready for number 40,261, honey, yeah! Bam! Bam! And so I got my profile together really quickly, and I started, like, browsing all of these men, and then I clicked on the first one, and his bio probably said something like, fine, it was, like, super unmemorable. And then right at the very bottom, it said, no rice, no spice, need apply. And here's another great way to have an existential crisis. Be a queer kid watching a heteronormative society dictate to you how you should live your life. And then when you finally have the confidence to rebuke that, realizing that the community that you're wanting to walk into doesn't really want you there in the first place. And it wasn't just one profile that said this. There there were many, but a lot of them didn't possess the same kind of like pizzazz that that one did. There were a lot of people who were just like, no Indians, no Asians, no black people. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, Justin, decolonize your butthole. Like, why do you want to fuck so many white men? And like, you would be right. But I was a banana. And I'm not sure how many other bananas are in the crowd tonight, but a a banana is basically someone who is yellow on the outside and white on the inside. You see, I, this was like not something that I had just like anointed myself. I had been trained for this. When I was younger, I lived in Southeast Asia and I was socialized in expatriate communities. 
And I always remember the way that my mother would teach my sister and I how to navigate conversations around race. She would sit at our marble table in the kitchen and she had this like ferocious perm that she just fed like bottles and bottles of Vidal Sassoon extra strength hairspray. <laughs> and she had these very long fingernails that were painted red and she would point them at me and she'd say, if anyone asks where you're from, you tell them that you're Australian. And then she'd say, you are the offspring of two people who left a shitty town in Malaysia called Kuching to move to a shitty town in England called Brighton, where your father worked in room service and I worked a legally inefficient chip shop so that you could eventually have the opportunities that we never could. So that you could be the kind of Asian who spoke English as a first language, so that you could be the kind of Asian who didn't need a scholarship to go to a good university, so that you could be the kind of Asian who knew not to go (laughs) when he ate his noodles. And in Singapore and in, and in Malaysia, there's this like, colloquial thing that um, local people do when they speak English where they add la onto the end of their sentence. And when my sister and I mimicked this, my mother would take those like, sharp red pincers and she would dig them into my skin. And maybe that sounds severe. And maybe I definitely like, hyper-dramatize that like a tiny bit just for your entertainment. <laughs> But it was with this intensity that I understood what my mother was trying to teach me. And that it was that I had to embody some sort of like ethnic palatability so that I could have the capability of passing in a way that my parents never could. And that was the kind of Asian that I was supposed to be. When I first started going out, there was this club in Sydney called The Midnight Shift, except nobody called it that. It was, to everyone on the strip, called Chopsticks and Walking Sticks because it was frequented by older white men and young Asians. It was like these two groups on the perimeter of Gay Desire had converged on this space because it was some sort of, like, gateway for desire. And it was this, like, dark and dank space that played, like, way too much Taylor Swift and smelled kind of faintly of the bleach that was used to clean my high school cafeteria. And every hour in it was, like, last call at any other bar, where even if you were dancing, your eyes were always darting around the room looking for somebody to settle on. And when your eyes finally locked with someone else, it was less about lust and more about knowing that this was as good as it was going to get for the night. It was after this sort of dance that I had sex for the first time. I remember his skin was like pale and he had these glossy protruding eyes and these like bluish lips and I definitely don't remember his name. And I remember taking him back to my basement apartment and having him explain to me how he had composed a piece of music for Chainsaw. And Chainsaw was a euphemism for literally nothing because he had actually composed a piece of music for Chainsaw. (laughs) But that was not enough to scare me away. (laughs) And so we were on my bed and he was on top of me and he did this thing where he kept like chomping on my nipples and my nipples are like kind of big and juicy so like we can call a snack a snack right like I have a certain amount of empathy for that 
But it got to the point where I was like, I'm in pain. So I was like, you got to stop. You've got to stop. And so he slowly like palmed his way up to my face. And then when his nose was touching mine, he said, suck me, la. And he felt me kind of recoil. And he saw that my face registered some shock. And he was like, don't worry. My best friend is Malaysian. And in that moment, I remembered what kind of Asian I was. I was a grain of rice, designed to be washed of my impurities, then designed to be pushed around your plate, designed to be in service of the sauce on your meat. And so when he sat on top of my face, I sucked him, la. And then when he did everything else, I let him. And I remember my head on the foot of my bed, and I turned my head to the right, and I had this teeny tiny window that looked out onto the grass of my backyard. And all I could think about was how I had waited so long to experience desire in my body. And now that it had finally happened, all I wanted was to not be in my body. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> it was after that that I decided, well, people clearly didn't get the memo. I was not doing a very good job of demonstrating how much of a banana I am. So I decided to start telling people that I was half Hawaiian, which, like, is just not smart. I remember <laughs> I went to this Middle Eastern restaurant with this, like, very beautiful man, and he was very earnestly trying to have a conversation with me about my dual citizenship. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> I've not done enough due diligence to figure out the logistics of this lie. <laughs> the most time that I had spent in Hawaii was a week at the Sheraton in Maui with my family. <laughs> and it showed. <laughs> There are only so many stories you can tell about sitting in the ocean, apparently. <laughs> Even after I stopped telling people that I was half Hawaiian, I was convinced that I had somehow managed to clean myself of my ethnicity. And it wasn't until that night in therapy with Blaine and with Miley and my ex that I realized that no matter how hard I tried to be a banana, people would always see me as Asian. Because I am. <laughs> Needless to say, that relationship didn't work out. We lasted 12 weeks, so we didn't even make it to our first trimester. Um, <laughs> And several months later, I would hear about this party in Brooklyn called Bubble Tea, which a writer once said was a night for slasians. And I remember walking into it for the first time and seeing it like decorated in red and gold 
with these like cherry blossoms hanging from the ceiling or maybe that's just like some sort of sick oriental fantasy that I've projected onto the memory (laughs) and it turns out I'm just like a horrible banana still (laughs) and the room was packed with people who looked like me from wall to wall and I felt so wooden it felt like I had crashed somebody else's life And I remember looking at the stage and seeing this one guy with these like half moon glasses pulled all the way down to his nostrils. And he was carrying like this little baby purse on his shoulder and he had these tiny baby heels in white and these white jeans and this white spaghetti strap with all of these little jewels on it that spelled out bubble tea. And I was transfixed by him because every time the light hit his chest, it radiated out. And I was watching him move on stage with so much freedom and with so much agency, and I instantly recognized that it was a way that I had never been present in my own body. And I really desperately wanted to know what it felt like. And I was awakened from my stupor by my friend who grabbed my two hands and started like violently shaking me. And it was because of that that I started dancing. And the moment that I fully committed to joining those people on that floor was like the moment that I ate the Spam Musubi from Kitchen in Brooklyn for the first time, (laughs) where they take like a piece of Spam and they put some sugar on it and then they take a blowtorch and they caramelize it and they put it on top of a block of rice and they put a seaweed like strap around it and you're given this like savory sweet experience that you never knew you really needed. And if you were to tell me that that's actually how they make Spam Musubi in Hawaii, I'd be like, I don't fucking know. I spent a week at the Sheraton in Maui. (laughs) But that night that I felt that was the very first time that I understood what it meant to tend to a part of my being that for so long had been crying out for recognition, but I had chosen to dismiss for so long. And I know that I will always be a product of my history, but I know that I have the power to change the trajectory of my future. And so I'm grateful that I found myself on the dance floor at Bubble Tea that night because I was being shown the truth. And I'm really grateful that I'm here on this stage telling you all a story about just how much I hated myself because hopefully that means that I've stopped. Thank you. Okay. 
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Maggie Rogers behind me now, and we just heard from Justin J. Wee. You can find him online at justinjwee.com. He is fabulous. And so are you. (laughs) All of our Risk listeners, listen, we want you to pitch us your stories and come see our upcoming live shows. You know, the way to pitch us is to go to risk-show.com slash submissions. There's a video there. There's an audio there. Lots of helpful tips on how to pitch us your stories. And tell your friends to do it, too. That is all at risk-show.com slash submissions. You can always find information about where Risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour. Now, if you are at all interested in learning about storytelling, our sister company is thestorystudio.org. We teach in-person workshops in New York, Los Angeles, and Minneapolis, and we do one-on-one training over Skype, We have video workshops that you can download and take in your own time. And we teach a lot of corporate workshops for staffs of businesses. That's all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>